Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Valley Baptist Church. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 35. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take it. It's our gift to you. Uh, I put a very big distraction behind me this morning. It's, this is not a ploy, although it seems like it'd be a great idea the more I think about it. We are in Luke chapter 12, verse 35. I have a difficult text to preach through today. And so I thought, well, if I put this really cute picture behind me, they'll be smiling at me the whole time, you know. Uh, you know, normally when she's in the service, I have to fight against her anyhow, so I figure I'll put the distraction behind me. Um, but I'll explain the picture in a moment. Um, um, on Luke chapter 12, verse 35 through 48, um, the, we teach through the Bible here. I pick a book and I go through it. This passage... I have never selected this passage when I've been invited to be a guest speaker to go share somewhere. And they say, hey, whatever you feel like the Lord's leading you to preach on. Now, I, after studying it all week, I definitely think I would preach on this, no problem. But this is not typically something that I would preach on. Just you know, But because we go verse by verse, I'm not the one who's choosing. This, we're allowing God to speak. And so we come before this passage asking God to help us understand what he's revealed to us. The reason that this picture of Elizabeth is up here, this is my youngest daughter who's just walking in right now. So now I have, this is like double attack. So I always have, you know, multiple um, distractions, but because she's so, she's so cute in my opinion. Um, and uh, so t- when I come home, one of the favorite things I love about being a dad, normally it's Grace and Elizabeth, possibly Grace was in this picture. But if Anna says, hey, dad's coming home, I could be it could I could be six hours out and they will sit at that on the couch looking out the window, just waiting for me. And when they see my car pull up, this is the I mean, the excitement level. And I just there's nothing better for me as a dad as I'm walking in. I hear dad, dad's home, dad's home. And then it's just like I'm attacked. It's great. And the reason I put this picture here is because I want you to stare at this picture all, all day today. I want it to be stuck in your mind because I think that this picture is a lesson of this text. Is This is how God wants us to be for him. And most of us, are, I'm not like that all the time. And so hopefully as we go through this, um, th- I'm just going to read the text and then we'll get in and you'll understand my difficulties. So, Father, I come before you and I ask you for help now. Um, As I go through this text, um, Father, I pray that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of this section of Jesus's teaching. I thank you for his words. I thank you for his instruction, his example to us. And Father, we pray that as we go through this, Lord, your spirit would soften our hearts. Lord, that you would help us to see how this applies to our life. And we pray that you would help us um, to be ready, Lord, that we would wait for you. Um, Lord, we struggle. Um, we all do. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just light the fire in our heart, Lord. May our excitement and love for you grow day by day. Um, Father, I pray just that you'd help me to handle this text correctly and in honoring of you. We love you, Lord. We praise you. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Be dressed in readiness. And keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, 
so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and to get and get drunk. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him in a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few from everyone who has been given much, much will be required and to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask for more. And Father, I just ask you now, as we go through this text, um, that you would help me, Lord, open our hearts, uh, that we would hear a word from you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This text is difficult. Anna, I've been cracking up all week, you know, because Casey, be praying for Casey. She's not here right now. She'll be at the second service. But Casey's grandmother is battling very severe brain cancer or cancer that's in all over her body. And their family is going through a very, very difficult time. In this process, Anna said, you know what, Casey, I'm going to take over all of your Sunday school teaching, which Casey does a ton around here. Um, behind the scenes, she teaches like the kids at all levels. Um, and Anna said, well, you know what, I'm going to take over the teaching for you so you can just be in church and be like ministered to during this time. And so this is Anna's first Sunday where she's teaching the 7 to 12-year-olds and she's shaking her head going, I need to study with you, Gunnar. Where are your notes? What, what, what good things have you read this week? I need, how am I, oh man, what did I like? Way to jump into teaching, you know? Uh, but this text is about the importance of looking forward, looking to the end. I'm very much a person. The question I've always asked my whole life, which drives a lot of people crazy, is so what? Like not so what, period, so what, question mark. So what does it mean? What's the importance of this? What's the value in this? I like looking at something at the very end of the process and seeing what does it spit out or what does it do? Am I going to am I want to do this? Or if I want to get there, what do I have to do to get there? This is very much a text that shoots us forward that affects how we live to today. Today is also a Sunday where we take communion. Very few people understand the whole biblical teaching on communion most of us understand it's a memorial or a a remembrance of what jesus did where we're forced to go back to the cross to realize what he did for us 
um, that we would kind of make ourselves right. But very much a part of communion is looking forward to the second coming of Christ, his return. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, it says, For often as you do this, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so often we talk about, subtly in little things, we talk about the Lord's coming without even realizing that we're talking about it. Christianese terms, these are terms that Christians use without knowing about it. Like Maranatha. I used to kind of think it was just the name of a church or something, but it means come Lord Jesus quickly, like, or come quickly. When I was a kid, I was raised in the Catholic church. We recited a bunch of stuff. One of the things that we kind of recited, well, I didn't really recite, but I kind of got good at reciting it. It was the Nicene Creed, which is really good, but I didn't really, I just knew it. Like at the part we would kind of, and I would kind of, there was, there was a few things I knew what to say when they came. And if you, Know the Nicene Creed or you are raised Catholic, you, this will probably bring back a little flashback. It says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, all that is seen and unseen. See, I didn't really memorize this, so I got to read it. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son, eternity begotten of the Father, um, from God, light from God, tr- uh, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he was born of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and seated on the right hand of the Father. This is all really good doctrine. And then there's a line that says, He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And it continues. But I remember kind of like, because I, I think I kind of got it when it's like he suffered and died under Pontius Pilate. Like as a kid, I kind of remembered, ooh, I can kind of mumble through this part and actually say the right words. And then the whole part about, well, he's going to come again and judge. I would say that and not even think about it. And unfortunately in our culture, especially just with the passing of May 21 of 2011, which made all the news that Jesus is coming back, according to Harold Campion, we tend to get a little bit sarcastic like i kind of think that whatever day a man names that's guaranteed the day that god will not send jesus back like jesus will not come on that day he won't and so then this guy on the may 21st campaign they really oh the media loved that it was all over the place and in reaction i think christians joined in this bandwagon of kind of mocking the guy and we have to caution because From a biblical position, we believe that Jesus will come back to reign and rule. And if I asked you, there was an old preacher, I forget his name, a Scottish guy. He died when he was 29 years old. And at a pastor's conference, he got all these pastors together and he asked them, how many of you believe that Jesus is coming back tonight? And they kind of like, most of the pastors kind of like, no. And he said, well, I want to read you this text. According to Jesus, Jesus says when you least expect it, that's when he will. So if you all just shook your heads, no, there is a possibility he could come. And it was kind of like, oh. And so as we get into this text in light of communion, I, uh, so often when we take communion, because we, um, you know, we, it's like we do it on a certain time. Like churches, some do it every Sunday. Some do it once a month. We kind, I shoot for once a month, but sometimes if the text allows for it, I'll do it more frequently. 
I would like doing it every week. I could almost do it every day. But doesn't really, the Bible doesn't say just for as often as you do this. But today's a day when we're doing communion. And it fits so nicely. What I don't want to do is that we have the whole service. We speak about something. And at the end of the service, it's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. We're doing communion. So let's just kind of talk about communion really fast. And everybody come do communion and sit down. Like, I want communion to be at the forefront of our thinking through this whole passage. Because the second coming of Christ is very much integrated with our taking of communion. If you would go with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're visiting with us, up here is a list of the verses that I anticipate that I will go to. I may or may not go to all of those. I may add some. Or I could hit them all. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, this is sort of the starting point. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, we read, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, referring to communion, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are in between times, the first and second coming of Christ. There's, I have strong positions on this subject. I, I very much hold a doctrinal place. I also realized that the Pharisees had a lot of strong positions and they totally missed what God was doing. And so in my journey on this area, which I only really struggled with this because I went to seminary and Bible college and this is like what we do is discuss and debate and argue over these certain things. And I always ask the question, so what? Which I'll get to later. Like I think there is a very big so what about this. I'm trying to limit what I'm saying to the very essentials of what the scripture says. Okay? So Christ came. He lived. He died. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was killed. He rose again. The, the, the Jewish people, the Pharisees, they knew that Jesus was coming, but they had merged prophecy to where they saw the king that would come to reign and to rule. The second coming. And so... Between the first coming and the second coming, here we are. We're kind of in between the times. And so when we take communion, we realize that when we're taking communion, when we're reflecting on the broken body of Christ and the new covenant in the blood, we're, our marching orders during this time, the so what? Like we're to proclaim the Lord's death, that he came, that he died, that he loves you so much that Christ, being God in heaven, stepped off of his throne and his riches and humbled himself and came to earth, lived the perfect life, that when he went to the cross, he was your substitute. He was my substitute. All of the world's sin was placed upon him who knew no sin. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And so while we wait for him to come, we share this good news with others. And this is partly what communion is to remind us of. And there's a seriousness about communion. See, this whole living in a world between Catholicism and Protestantism, you know, like, is that a word? I don't know. I make up words. We'll just let it go. I am. Um, communion's one of these issues of like, it's a strong point of contention. I think communion is a very serious thing. And in a in a recourse of maybe disagreement over how some view what communion is, we, 
Protestants have almost minimized the value of the importance of communion. See, and continue reading in verse 27. It says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That's serious. Guilty. But a man must examine himself. In so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. This isn't like they had a big, you know, barbecue binge and they like, took their afternoon nap. This means they died. That they were doing communion wrong, that they were sinning before God and God took them. This is pretty serious to me. Like if we really believe the Bible and I like struggle and face sometimes like, no, like this, what it says is, is if we come and take communion and our hearts are wrong and we're doing it properly, God in the past has taken people home for doing this. Like to me, this is like, okay, let's read the instructions the second time to make sure we're getting this. Because I don't know about you, but I don't want to eat a little broken cracker that's been in the fridge for the last couple of weeks or whatever. You know, it's brand new. It's real fresh. But fresh, these crackers taste stale because there's no leaven or anything in them. And it's just a little kosher grape juice. I don't want to eat my little cracker. Have a little... What happened? Well, the Bible says it's serious. And so with that, we'll turn back to Luke chapter 12. So in Luke chapter 12, verse 35, this story is set. It's a very fast story, although we're going through it kind of slowly. This is like, I think our, I think it's our third week since Jesus walked out of the Pharisee's house where he had lunch, where didn't go, where he challenged them for their hypocrisy. And he basically assaulted the scribes verbally for how they had failed to obey God in their helping the people. He goes immediately as he steps out, this huge crowd had developed thousands upon thousands of people stepping all over each other. He grabs his disciples and he holds them. And I kind of, I sense his nostrils flaring his, listen, so enraged what he saw in the leaders of Israel. He grabs his future leaders of the church and he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Don't think that you're better than everybody else. Don't act like you hold the keys and block people. He then goes on to what verse was it? It's verse, I get it right, chapter here, where we started last week in verse, yeah, uh, eh, you know, where are we here? So, uh, chapter 12, here we go. Verse 13. Um, um, then the guy comes up and he talks about his, you know, Lord, help me, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. And then he tells him, be on your guard, be weary of, of greed that's in your heart. And he told him to focus possessions correctly. And so from that talking about stewardship and, you know, it was not a call for you guys to give more money as a pastor, as a Christian. It's more of a call. Like I totally believe like in giving and I like people say, well, do you believe in tithing? It's like, well, I believe that tithing is training wheels for giving. I believe that God wants us to give far more than we're comfortable with giving. And I'm really more concerned about what you don't give 
And I think God's more concerned about what you don't give. It's how do you handle the resources that he's entrusted you with? And from that, we transition into this section, verse 35. And he tells him, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Keep your lamps lit. This is Motel 6 stole the phrase from the Bible. What is Motel 6 saying? We'll keep the light on for you. It was dark. There's not street lamps. And, and the, when, the, when they went away to a wedding, see, I did a wedding yesterday. It started at 10. I got there probably around 9. I was done by 11. I was home by noon. It was a pretty fast ordeal. It wasn't like and I have cell phones. I could communicate. See, back then, a wedding was weeks long. Could be days, weeks. They never knew. And the master, when he left for the wedding, the house was to continue. The property was to be continuing going the same. There would be a head servant. And Jesus is saying, using this parable of this servant, saying, be like this, the good servant who keeps ready. Doesn't matter what time he gets home, if it's two or three in the morning, that when he comes home, you know, that light is lit in the front of the house. So when he's miles out going, man, I think my house is over here. He can see that that beam and get there. When he opens the door, the servant's like, we got some fresh cookies for you. We have some milk. How can we attend to you? We've been waiting for you. He says, be like that guy. He goes on to say, verse 37, blessed are those slaves when they're, when the master will find them on the alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and to have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. Whether he comes on the second watch or even the third and finds them so blessed are those slaves. He said, listen, I tell you, if that the property owner, if he comes back the second or third watch, so we're pressing into like three in the morning. If he comes in at three in the morning, he finds all of the servants like acting the same in his absence and waiting for him. He says what that owner, what that master will do, he'll be so pleased with him. He'll say, you know, you guys take a break. You go sit down at the table. Let me go put on some working clothes. I'm going to guard myself and I'm going to serve you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to take care of you. You're going to be blessed. We see this picture of Jesus in John chapter 13 in the Lord's Supper when he washes the disciples feet. And he says, you know what? You're not greater than your master. Jesus over and over again, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom to many. And so Jesus is saying, this is how a good master will respond to servants who are eagerly waiting for him. Verse 39, the, the, the Ill, there's a reward and then we get this sort of illustration, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed the house to be broken into. Suddenly he kind of shifts to this, this idea of theft and broken into. Like if you guys knew what time your house was going to get robbed, don't you think you could defeat a crook? In my study this week, I heard a hilarious story from a news article. And the story was a couple's car was stolen. It came back like two or three days later. It appeared back in their driveway with a note. We're really sorry. We like we had a change of heart. Like it was really wrong of us. Here are here's a gift certificate for you guys to go out to dinner and two like tickets to the the symphony. Like we're really sorry. Like anonymous. So the family's like, oh, how sweet is that? 
And so then what they did is they went to the symphony, went out to a nice dinner, came back, and their whole house was robbed. <laughs> it was a total setup. Brilliant by the crooks. You know, I mean, I'm not encouraging this. Don't try this at home. This is not, it's not Christ-like. But so the whole thing is they're like, oh, this is great. There's, how oh, nice of them. And they set them up to leave so that they could rob them. They were unaware. They were unalert. They were not ready. I should have called the police and said, this is, can you fingerprint these? Can you like whatever, you know, like police said, do not go out that time. We're going to have, or, or they would say, go out. We're going to set up a sting by your house and we'll be waiting. We'll wait for them to come and then we'll snatch them. And so then verse 40, sort of the command, the picture of Ellie, what this is all about up here. Verse 40, you too be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you will, you do not expect. So that's the whole lesson he's trying to teach in this parable. And I just love, like Peter, I love Peter so much in the Bible. He gives me so much hope. Like here's the guy who was the leader of the church after the ascension, but he fumbled and followed his way through. Like he's the old, he's the, like the oldest guy of all the apostles. And here he is like, <clears throat> they went to Jesus goes to lunch with the Pharisees. Jesus comes out furious. He's telling us, okay, watch out for hypocrisy. Then he, then all of a sudden a guy from this huge crowd of thousands upon thousands of people starts asking Jesus like, Hey, will you help me divide our, will you tell my brother to give me part of my inheritance? And Jesus says, man, who am I? Am I your arbitrator? Am I your attorney? Like what? And he goes on to talk about beware of greed. And now Jesus starts talking about being ready. And here's Peter that probably all of them are going, what is Jesus talking about? See, we're looking at hindsight that we knew that the death, the burial, the, the resurrection of Christ. We knew all of that. They didn't understand. They thought Jesus was coming as the Messiah that would establish his kingdom. So much so that when he ascends into heaven and they're standing there or before he goes, is, is now the time that you're going to establish the kingdom? Is, is now the time? Just go to Jerusalem. Wait, the Spirit's going to come. And you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So they, they still were like, he's, he's coming as a Messiah. And he is, according to Isaiah, to Daniel, to all throughout the whole Bible, that Jesus is coming. I read something this week, I think is in the whole Bible, one out of every five verses in the entire Bible speaks of the Lord's return. And it might have been the New Testament or the Old Testament. I kind of forget. But overwhelmingly, the Bible speaks of the return of Christ. And so Peter, uh, excuse me, Jesus, excuse me. Are, are you talking to like, us, the disciples? Or are you talking to like everybody right now? Like, because I'm kind of lost, you know? Like, and Jesus doesn't answer his question. He answers his question with a question. I love Jesus's style of teaching. He forces the person to think and to ponder and to process. We so want to tell people what to think. Jesus allowed them to, to think through certain things, to reach your end conclusion. Because when a person starts to understand, to think through something and understand the last result, then they start going, oh, you know, I'm going to die one day. And see, death is one of these sort of, it's like a, a very much is a, uh, it forces us, it challenges every thought, every notion, every thing that we think about this life. We cannot hide from it. And you could say, well, I just think that we all reincarnate. We all, like, I just think that there's nothing. 
But suddenly when death is knocking on your door, you're forced to really ponder. And God wants us to start pondering this when we're like two years old, when we're five years old, when we're six years old. Now, this isn't something to start thinking about at that last moment. And so Jesus then answers Peter in verse 42. And the Lord said, who then is faithful and sense? Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Huh? Jesus is going to start telling a second parable related to the first that's divided by Peter's question. And the context still is stewardship. So we're in the readiness, in the waiting for Jesus to come. There's this idea that God is holding us accountable for how we steward our life. And it's genius because you'll become a better steward of your life if you understand what the end comes today. Let me help you explain this. I was a Navy SEAL for 12 years. Most of you know that. One of the things I did not like doing was jumping out of planes. I kind of liked it, but I really it, it kind of goes against your nature to jump out of a perfectly good plane. But everybody, when you're a SEAL, everybody goes to static line school. That's automatic. That's where you have a little hook. You hook into the back of the plane. It's got a little leash on it. So when you just, it's basically fail proof. You just jump out of the plane and the thing pulls your parachute almost 100%. Like virtually, I mean, army guys and Marines can do it. <laughs> this is my concept. And even Air Force guys, just thinking of Tom, you know, getting everybody, you know, like everybody. Go Navy. <laughs> but if the thing opens, you can't steer. You kind of float down to earth. And they, tie, they created the parachute just so you can get down fast enough that you, you shouldn't break a leg when you land. They don't want it to go too slow because most times people are shooting at you. And so they want you to kind of be quick, but then to survive the fall. But then what everybody wants to do is free fall, where they can take you up from like, if you do hey-ho, which is hey-ho or hey-lo, where you go up to 35,000 feet with oxygen, you jump out, it's really cold, and you fall and for a couple minutes, and then you pop your parachute and you fly away. It's a lot of fun. So everybody wants to go to the school. Even if you don't want to go to the school, you have to act like you want to go to school. And so I went to the school. I, I don't know which camp I was in. Like, I probably would have been okay if I never went to free fall school, to be totally honest with you. But I got it. I got senior enough, and they sent me to free fall school. So I thought, oh, this is fun. So you fly out to North Carolina, Vietnam or Fayetteville, North Carolina, and there's a big wind tunnel. And so there's this big room, and the air is like, I mean, imagine like a blow dryer that blows cold air. Like, if you're going 100 miles an hour down the freeway and you stick your head out, it's kind of like that, except then you go horizontal. And so they teach you how to fly in this wind tunnel where you're not going anywhere. You're just kind of hovering on the ground. It's so much fun. Like, I could do it all day long. And so half the time is spent at this wind tunnel flying around. The other half of the day, you go to this big gymnasium and you learn how to pack a parachute. That was like the boring part. And so the first day we go over to pack the parachutes, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to kind of fumble through this. Like, I'm, I'll pack the parachute. But we got... We got riggers, you know, we got professionals to pack our parachutes. All right, so I thought, and they said, oh, listen, next week when we fly you to Yuma and you jump out of the aircraft for the first time, you will be jumping with the parachute you pack. What? Like, what? That's not fair. Like, that's not cool. 
Like, don't worry, your reserve will be professionally packed. So if you have a malfunction, you can cut away and you should be good. They want to open. Okay, okay. So now they're giving us instructions because I know the day is coming when I'm going to jump out of an airplane and it's going to be based on my skills. So I've got the parachute. Can I get it? I know it's not time for an inspection, but can you come just let me know that everything's going okay? Like all along the way, being meticulous about packing this parachute. And then we fly to Yuma on Sunday night. We go, the first thing we do is we get our parachutes. We pack them. Okay, your parachute's packed for tomorrow. Can I tell you how much sleep I got that Sunday night? I was in fervent prayer. Lord, please. Like I'm ready to go. I was a Christian by this point. I was like, Lord, I'm ready to go, but I'm, I really kind of enjoy this life and I'm cool with sticking around. So help me toss it and turn it all night. I can't like the whole concept, like the, the, the thought of jumping out of this plane with nothing attached to me, like it was just, you know, I thought I'd pack the perfect parachute, but then I would slip out of the harness. But because I knew it was coming, my actions leading up to that were influenced by that final thing. And Jesus here, what he's saying is one day you'll stand before God. I don't care if it's his second coming or death or the rapture. We're going to stand before him. It's a reality. And he's saying that knowing that that reality is coming, should it influence how you live your life today? King Solomon made this mistake and he wrote Ecclesiastes at the end of his life. He talked about how he had all the money, all of these things, and it was all vanity of vanities. In chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, he says, this is what I've learned, young people. Young people, while you are young, fear the Lord and serve him and honor him. And because this is what it's all about. Don't waste your whole life figuring this out. And so Jesus answers this question. Well, who's the good steward? Who's the one as the master leaves? Well, the one who's doing all of this stuff realizes that his master's coming away and he's not going to party while he's gone. He continues in verse 43 and he says, blessed is that slave whom the master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that we will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But the warning here. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him in an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and assign him to a place with the unbelievers. The unbelievers, that doesn't seem to fit. Cut him in pieces and assign with, uh, like Jesus is speaking about hell again. This, this guy that is all about love sure does talk about hell and fear a lot. And so now this story takes a turn and Peter's like, wait, what question did I ask? Like, like he didn't seem to answer my question. And so Jesus says, okay, the master goes away. The one he comes back, he finds a slave doing the right thing. That guy's going to be blessed. That guy will be placed above all of the possessions. But the slave, the head of the household, that when the master is gone, say, hey, let's party. Mom and dad are gone. Let's throw a huge thing. Let's, let's go crazy. Then all of a sudden, he shows up a day early. He sees this head guy. He's been beating everybody. Drunk is a skunk. He says, this guy is going to be cut into pieces. And understanding the context here, wrestling through this, going, you know, I'm like, sorry, Anna, you got to talk to those little kids about this master cutting up somebody in pieces. <laughs> I'm so glad I deal with adults more than children, you know, like. 
And uh, Jesus is standing still with the Pharisees behind him. And Jesus' rebuke, we're, we'll get to it next week. I'll cover it lightly. He's angry with, with the people that he's called to lead Israel to show them the way of God. They have so run amok. They are hurting the people who are seeking God. They are turning people away. They haven't become believers. And then the people who are trying to come, he stand, they're standing in the way. And Jesus is like, I'm so furious what's going on there. And we as a church, we as Christians, we should stand behind Israel. Today I'm reading the paper. This last night, there was like, there's, there's, like, there's so much unrest in Israel today right now. Like, there's a difference. And part of this, like, how, how much to go? I think that there's a need to talk about the difference between the second coming and the rapture at a very minimal level. I don't want to burn you, like, bore you guys. And I'm like, oh, I could get graphs and get all stuff. But I, I don't want to get lost in the differences. I, I see a, a difference. This is, this is my understanding. See, the second coming is following up from my understanding, from my theological background. In Daniel, there's reference of 70 weeks. And there's a 70th week, which isn't a week. It's a, it's, a, it's a seven year period of time is one week. From my humble opinion, this is not something we fight and divide over, which plenty of Christians do. I'm just telling you my understanding. And we're told in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you would turn there, and in my position was predominantly shaped somewhat by seminary through my study of the Bible, but really in, in seminary, wrestling through these things, not knowing, not wanting to be like a Pharisee. I didn't want to think that I have it all figured out that I miss everything. And there was like this whole, there, we had this little Bible study and there was a guy who was very argumentative about this subject. And he was a guy that was very unaware of his surroundings. And I was aware of like a number of young people that were exploring the faith and were like not quite Christians yet. They wanted to learn more about Jesus. And somehow in the Bible study, he's like totally blasted with me about the precise timing of Jesus's return. And I'm like, brother, what's the point? Like, what's like, why do you think? So, so what do you think God talks about the rapture for? And our answer is found in first Thessalonians chapter four. This is really where the rapture and I don't want to talk about the timing with it. My only timing is I want to hold a position that allows for Jesus to come back right now. And I've talked to other people. I say, well, could Jesus come back right now? They say, well, no, by my understanding, the closest he could come back is three and a half years, maybe seven. If he came back right now, then I'd have to rethink my position. I'm like, well, I want my position to be in the camp that Jesus can come back at any given moment, including this moment. And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, we see that these Christians were under severe persecution. People were dying. They were being killed for their faith. And there was uncertainty for those that were left behind. Like, what does this all mean? And so Paul writes them in verse 13 of chapter 4. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who are dead, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. He's like, those who know Christ have hope. Those who don't have no hope. When you see a funeral, when I do a funeral with people that don't know Christ as Savior, 
There is a darkness and a despair and a hopelessness in their eyes because all of us humans, when faced with death, we can't handle it because we were not created to die. And so when we see death, our body almost, it's like the blue screen of death on a PC. Like what happened? How do we function? How do we cope? But those who know Christ have understanding. Paul tells him he wants you to be aware of these things. He goes on to say, verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring him to those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ or through Jesus. For in this, we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. So here's this picture of Jesus descending from heaven with a shout, with the voices of an archangel, with a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Dr. George Hare, who preached here, he has one of the driest, most hilarious sets of humors that I've ever heard. He's subtle, but you got to catch it. I went to a funeral that he preached for Black Bart, a, a, an old Catholic priest that had left the Catholic Church. And so this was the longest funeral I'd ever been to because there's seven pastors gave their testimony about how this guy had impacted his life. And Dr. Hare gave the sermon and he gets to this point. And he's like, well, I don't know why the dead in Christ rise first, but I know they got six feet farther to go than the rest of us. And I'm like, you are hilarious. So his explanation is, well, they're farther away from heaven. So they got to, you know, be exhumed and shoot up to heaven. So that's why they get to go first, because they have more work than us. That's just a sidebar, you know. He continues, verse 17, then we who are alive in Christ and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. The so what portion of the whole eschatology end times, end times discussions in Christian world today is, is more about promoting fear and being afraid and like, oh, stockpile this and you just don't know. And I'm all for being prepared on a certain level. But verse 18 is why God told us about this. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. When you're scared, when you're discouraged, when you are facing death and you don't know what's going on. As a Christian, we're told that our, our brother, our dad, our family member who just passed away in Christ, they're going to meet with Christ. And see, this is where the whole theology of the rapture comes from the Latin word raptura and this something like that. I'm not going to go far into this. But see that where this distinction from the second coming, when you start going into Revelation and Isaiah and these verses that speaking that the Messiah is going to come and to reign and rule on earth for a thousand years, a millennium. Like, I believe that this is a literal, this is not allegory, that Jesus is coming in the plain, simple language of the scripture, that Jesus is coming back in his second coming to reign with an iron fist. It will not be like the first time. But see, what's different about this passage we're not meeting Jesus like in Jerusalem. It's not like all of those in Christ will be transported to Jerusalem and will suddenly start taking place. It says we're going to catch up with him in the air. Don't ask me to explain this. All I know is it says that, that this passage says that Jesus is going to appear in the sky. Those who are in Christ are going to be with him always, forever and ever, always. 
And there's a lot of discussion. Well, when does this happen? Does this happen as he's coming down? Well, we don't know. I don't hold that position. But I don't, that's really irrelevant. The church will meet him in the air. This is what's referred to as the rapture. What Jesus is talking about with Israel here in Luke chapter 12, we can go back there. He's speaking of the second coming, which wasn't really understood. Most of Israel understood the second coming as just one coming. There wasn't a first and second. They missed Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant. And so here Jesus is telling them in his first coming, he's speaking of his second coming coming. It's totally, I totally give Peter and all the apostles like a mulligan. Like, it's okay, they missed this. It's so easy for us to look backwards and explain this all and to kind of see where these poor guys are like, what are you talking about, Lord? Okay, where am I? Okay, so what? So Jesus is giving this fear about readiness. Be prepared. It's kind of a statement. It's also like, I think, a warning with the Pharisees and scribes behind him. Here, they think that they're, they think that they're the practitioners, the owners, the explainers of the Old Testament. They think they know everything. I am the Messiah. I am. He is the great I am. In John eight fifty eight, I think is what it is. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is God. He always existed in eternity past and eternity future. When he came to earth and presented himself to Israel, the experts in the laws rejected him. And he's saying, here the master comes and they want to crucify me because they say I'm blaspheming and claiming that I'm God. Don't let anybody tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. He absolutely claimed to be God. He went to his death claiming to be God. He rose from the grave to demonstrate that he was God. He ascended into heaven. There is no body. And so when we get to this, the so what? Like, so, so he gives this statement. What does this mean to us as Christians today? One of the guys who was here, Peter being the oldest apostle, the youngest one was John. The son of thunder, him and his brother. The ones that prayed that they, hey, Jesus, is it okay earlier in the book? Can we rain down thunder on the Samaritans who won't let us pass through their town? She said, calm down, little whippersnapper. Like, he went from being the son of thunder to the apostle of love. At the end of his life, as the last remaining apostle, he wrote, well, he wrote the Gospel of John, but the first, second, and third letter of John he wrote. And I want you to go to 1 John chapter 2. This is a little intense. Remember, this is all related to communion. <clears throat> I hope this is helpful. I know that I... Um, when I went to Bible college and seminary, my father-in-law shared a phrase with me that I thought adequately described my experience at my seminary where the Bible is the key text in every class. He said, going to seminary is like trying to get a sip out of, a, out of water, out of a fire hydrant that has exploded. And so it's okay if you feel like that this morning. It's okay. We'll try to wrap up this, this phrase, 1 John 2.28 the Apostle John, now the old man, exiled to Patmos, the Apostle of love, what he says concerning the coming, I think is very applicable, describes this little picture of Ellie to a T to me. And he says, now little children, abide in him, that's Jesus, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him at, in shame at his coming. See, I love this picture. 
It says, abide in him. What does it mean to abide? Like as a new Christian, I hate it. What is all this Christianese? What do you mean? Like, I don't get it. What do you, like, I can't, like, how do I abide? God has revealed his word to us. Like, so I think that spending time in the Bible, it's a huge intimidating book. But if you just read a little bit every day, if you come to a church where they teach the Bible, if you're visiting here and you're passing through, that's great. But go to a church where they teach the Bible. One Sunday might blow you away, but it's more about like over the course of a year of studying the scripture, God will do great things in your life. When you're in a relationship, like I did a wedding, there's a wedding all over this. Like one line I always use at every wedding I do, and it always gets a big laugh by the married people. The single people are like, that's not, what are you talking about? I always say, I quote the saying, love is blind, but marriage is an eye opener. (laughs) (laughs) It's true, isn't it? But it's like when you're like in the, you know, the bride waiting to be married, it's like all you want to do is be on the phone and talk and be in love. That's what Jesus wants for us. That's prayer. It's like that we read his word, that we go through our day, that we say, Lord, no. praying isn't some sort of like fancy dancy sort of like say a bunch of big words that you don't know what they mean and speak in the King James version. God wants us to communicate to him. Lord, help me. Lord, I need help. Right, now. Lord, oh, this person that's having a hard time. Would you just help them? I don't even know what I don't know what they need. Like that we can go to him and talk to him and communicate to him always. That when we feel like he's leading us to do something, we would pursue it. He could tell you to do all kind of crazy, uncomfortable things. Then you respond to him. You develop your relationship. This is abiding. And John says, if you abide in him when he appears, when he appears in the air, you don't have to suddenly go, oh, no. Like, first off, if you're in Christ, you're still going. It didn't say that you're going to be banished. It said, but you don't, you won't have to shrink away in shame. That when Ellie sees me come, like when God comes, if this is me, I want my reaction. Lord, Abba, which means daddy, daddy's home. Like, this is great. We don't have to deal with the pain of this world anymore. It's finished. It's done. That's what he wants. He goes on to say, see how great a love the father has bestowed on us. See how much God loves us. That we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now that we are children of God and it has not been appeared to us as yet what it will be. We're children of God. God has revealed, but we don't have a clue of what's coming. We, it's, it's okay. We don't have to create charts and hold tightly to these doctrinal positions. Like I have do- deep theological convictions over the end times. But the main point, the so what, is he's coming again. He's coming again. I don't have to be afraid. I don't know what it's going to look like. But on that day, we'll find out according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, verse 2 of, I'm slow down. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God and has not yet appeared as to what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Like, we don't know what it'll be like. But think about that. Is in Christ, he's going to make us like him even more so. That's pretty awesome. Because we will see him just as he is. God is so holy and so pure that in the Old Testament, the speaking, if somebody was to see God face to face, they would die. But that day through the sanctification of Christ, that Jesus, his broken body and blood that we celebrate for communion, 
that gives us access to see him face to face. And because we see him face to face, we have to become like him. This is, this is talk about, I don't even know what to think about this. It just sounds pretty awesome. And I have a hard time believing it in total. Like this isn't stuff we've ever, I've never done this. Have you? None of us have. We've never jumped to the other. Like the only people who know are the people who've already died in Christ. They're the only ones. We live by faith. God said a bunch of crazy stuff to us. How do we know it's true? He conquered the grave. He ascended into heaven. He lived perfectly. To see the history of the scriptures, the number one book of all time in the midst of the only book that has been tried to be destroyed by so many people, yet it exists today. Verse three, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as is pure. As we live our lives looking to the end day, it affects like I'm not so proud that I can't tell you that when I fight with my wife and get upset over silly things. I'm afraid of the day when I stand before God and that sure helps me go to her and say, I'm sorry. Would I serious? Like, would I blow it with grace when she put that ring on her finger and I freaked out? Like, go, I go into Navy SEAL mode thinking we're going to have to amputate her finger to get the zip tie off. And Anna had to like kind of, she had slapped me, but it was kind of like, pull yourself together, man. Go to the, go to the soapy water. Sure enough, it came right off. I had like a steak knife to her finger, like thinking I was going to do the amputation on accident. And Grace was like, dad, like tears. You spoke harshly to me. The next day I cut some flowers and said, Grace, you know what? I'm not perfect. I'm sorry. I made a mistake. I panicked because I was worried for you. And I love you very much. And I shouldn't have said what I said. And it wasn't because I'm a great guy. It's because I fear God. Because I'm going to stand before him and I want to honor him. And I don't care to say I'm not perfect. Okay, where are we? Okay, back to Luke. Well, we got time. Welcome to Valley Baptist Church. You know, this is, this is a good text going through Luke. Next time I'm asked to speak somewhere, maybe I will share this text. <clears throat> okay, verses 49 and 50. So I think that this is like abiding with Jesus. 49 and 50. Actually, I skipped 48. Getting to like the, the premise, the purpose of this, this whole path. If verse 40 was one of the points, this is the point of the second parable. Verse 48, he says, but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging will receive a few. Like I, there's this sort of, and I don't understand it, but with God, there is a sort of a level of, of what we're accountable to. So here's a person who did a whole bunch of bad stuff, but they don't necessarily have the revelation of God. It says that even though they deserve it, they're going to receive a few. And I hate to break it. If you come to church, if you listen to the Bible, every time you hear the word of God spoken and you harden your heart more against God, you increase your accountability and the consequence that will come to you at a future day. I don't like the way that sounds. That is not seeker friendly. That is not, that's not like, politically correct but this is what the word says i don't like it any more than you but then it says from everyone who has been given much much will be required and to whom they entrusted much of him they will ask all the more god has revealed us we live in this time of age we live in a period of human history 
when your access to like the Bible, most of us own a Bible. If you don't own a Bible and it's not in your house, it's not because you can't get one. It's because you don't want one. Like I've offered you take, we've got like a hundred of them. Take as many as you want. We partner, like the Gideons come through every year. They give them away by the boatload. You can, if you have internet access, you can access every single translation of every single different language, commentaries of like every different variety. You can access the original language with no understanding of Hebrew or Greek. There's so much out there for us. We've been given much, much is required. Our resources, we are the top 1% of all human history, what we talked about last week. Much will be required of us. Okay. And as we lead into communion, we're setting up for the big, the, this is where we take communion. As Jesus is speaking of his coming, second coming, as he's speaking about the second coming, and he's warning them to be ready, to, to stay on your guard, to be prepared. He now in verse 49 shifts. 49 is a little rough, but we'll cover it next week. He says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. He is so furious with the Pharisees and scribes and how they had, had failed to do what God had called them to do. Then he says in verse 50, lead this. This is super important for us as we go into communion. Jesus says, but I have a baptism to undergo. And how distressed I am until it is accomplished. He's not talking about going to get baptized. He's already been baptized by John the Baptist. He's going to the cross. Jesus is the only one that has suffered this baptism. That he went to the cross. He's about to take on the world's sin. He's baptized in humanity's sin. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And he's going to the cross. He's in Jerusalem. We have a long way to go, but, but the, the cross is close. And he says, I wish I could bring judgment now on this world because the sin is so horrible. But my love for all people is so much that I've got to undergo this baptism. Think about that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praised, Lord, if there's any other way, if this cup could pass me, let it pass. That he's sweating, he's such in distress that medically they understand that, 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 that his sweat... Blood started coming out of his sweat pores. The agony and the weight of what he was about to go through. And why did he do this? He did it because he loved us. I hate to break it to you. You have no righteousness. Like good church people, there's nothing that you've done that is worthy of being before God. There's nothing that you can do. Isaiah tells us that your righteousness is but a menstrual rag before God. And you're only going to dig yourself a huge hole emotionally spiritually if you think that your works will accomplish anything but jesus said his works his righteousness it's been imputed to us it's been credited to our account last year i told you guys somebody used my credit card to buy i hope they had a great time but they bought a they bought a plane ticket somewhere in europe to somewhere else in europe it was like two thousand dollars i'm checking the bank account i call my bank and i say you know what I've been thinking about it, and I just don't think I bought a plane ticket in Europe. You know, 
done a lot of traveling. I'm like, maybe I did. I don't know. I'm like, Anna, did I buy a ticket to Europe anywhere? And she's like, no, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? So I'm like, yeah, I didn't buy that ticket. And they're like, oh yeah, it was purchased online. We'll, we'll, we'll cancel it. We'll contact the company. You'll be in reimbursed. So like then two weeks later or something, well, right away, my bank reimbursed the, the money. They took away the charge. And then like two weeks later, the, the travel agent's company, they deposited another two grand in my account. I was like, hey, look at that. And so I call up the bank and I get a nice little lady on the phone. I say, you know what? There's a little accounting problem. I noticed that you guys reimbursed me and they reimbursed me. And I said, you know, I'm pretty sure you guys want your money back. But it might, she's like, well, I got to transfer you to fraud services. And I'm like, listen, you really don't have to. If this is like such an administrative nightmare, I'll just take care of it. If that's what help you guys. She's like, she laughed, but she's like, oh, really funny. You trying to get me fired sort of thing. And so then they took the money back. And that was $2,000. I was pretty stoked over that $2,000. But what Jesus has done into our spiritual account, he has placed his resources into it our account, his righteousness. When God sees us in Christ, he sees the riches and the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see our own sin. Jesus had that placed on him. It's an awesome thing. And so as we end in first Corinthians chapter 11, leading up to communion, we do communion here. Like, I don't know. I kind of rotate through stuff, but the more I do it, I really like you guys coming forward. I know that sometimes Anna with children doesn't like the whole thing because it's sort of a hassle. So if you need help getting communion, tell somebody you need help. But I don't want to force communion on people. If it goes around in a tray, it's so easy just to take it, eat the cracker. But from this passage, we've already seen that people were, they were, they were put to death. They, God took them home because they were taking it improperly. And so we're going to back up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. And there it says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the sake, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it for there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may be evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to, it is not to eat the Lord's supper for in your eating, each one of you takes his own supper first and one is hungry and the other is drunk. What do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I will not praise you. It's like, whoa, 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 Gunnar, you never read this verse on communion. Like, what's this have to do? See, when we look at the book of Corinthians, and so many people go to Corinthians and they think that this is like some doctrinal book, the whole book of Corinthians is a scolding of the Apostle Paul. This, the Corinth church made Jerry Springer seem like a homeschool convention. They were a mess. They were a mess. Like, Jerry Springer has nothing on this church. It was so carnal. And Paul's letter is a scolding letter. And at the end of this, he says, like, if we shoot down to the very last sentence in chapter 11, it says the remaining manners I will arrange when I come. He said, this is I'm 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 telling you all this stuff. But when we talk, I'm talking to you face to face and we're going to straighten out some problems. And so they were doing communion wrong. And as he leads into communion, this is the only like epistle that deals with communion. 
he goes to verse 23 and he says, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we come and we take the cracker. We remember, we reflect looking back to the first coming. That Jesus came, his purpose was to be the suffering servant, the king of Israel, the great I am. He in his holy righteousness became sin for us. He suffered a brutal, violent death. More than we could ever, they would not show it on TV. They, would, they couldn't get a rating for the movie theaters to show what happened to him. And he did that for us. And Paul says that when we come to take communion, you remember what he did for you. That, you, that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. That his righteousness is placed upon us. It's not because of your good works. It's not because of your good deeds. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, because I can't do it. There's no way I could achieve this righteousness. And he says, so when you, take that, when you take that cracker and you take that juice, you realize what God did for you. He goes on to continue looking to the second coming of Christ, which Jesus talks about. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. These are our marching orders because Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, communion will be done with. We will not be doing communion in eternity because as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, where the Lord is, we are there with him always. There's no point in, we are there with him, worshiping him in eternity future. He goes on to say in the great warning, people have done this wrong and people are sick and people are dying. So before you take communion, take time to reflect. See, our sin keeps us from entering into a relationship with God. Christ came that we might have a relationship as Christians We have not attained perfection in this life. We sin. We struggle. Our our sin and our struggle doesn't separate us from God for eternity. But what it does is it breaks our fellowship and our relationship with him. And 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the whole so what about this passage, when I see what Jesus is talking about, The first step in getting ready to meet Christ is have you trusted in him as your savior? It's not about getting yourself cleaned up, start, get sober for enough time and then trust Jesus. It's like, no, while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. He expects nothing other than you to believe in him. So have you believed? Are you confident that if Jesus comes right right back right now that you've said, Lord, I believe? Like there's no, like there's a bunch of prayers you can pray, but the reality is in your heart, if you've believed, you've believed. At that moment, we're told that the spirit seals you, that you're, you're given a down payment until the day that's coming. As Christians, if you're here and about to take communion, what I'd ask you to do is like, they're going to come up, they're going to sing a couple songs. But for you to, before you come up, you come up when you're ready, you get your element and you go back to your seat and you take it when you're ready. But this is for you to kind of say, Lord, Like, where am I missing the mark? I want to be ready. I want to honor you. And if you can't think of anything, the first thing you can confess is your pride. Just to help you out. 
Because if you're drawing a blank, say, Lord, help me to confess my pride because, you know, obviously I can't think of anything. So I think I'm perfect. I know I'm not. Only you're perfect. So just to help you, I, that's, I've prayed that prayer a lot. You know, I know that one. The other thing I think in this is like today, like I wrote in my notes here, this is like my chicken scratch at five in the morning is reading the paper today to see just last night, like 10 or 11 people were killed in Israel over skirmish. Like the whole, like the second coming, this is God is dealing with Israel. As Christians, we need to love Israel, stand behind them, and not just militarily, but, but really spiritually. I'll never forget when I was in Israel last year, and there was some like waterway system at the old city of David. You could walk down there, and you can wade through the water, but they wouldn't let us because somebody was just killed on the other side of it. And me and this other young guy that was in the group, we were trying to talk, I'm like, dude, come on. I was a Navy SEAL. I'm good to go. We'll just walk through. I'll peek my head out, and then we'll come back. And he started laughing. He's like, no, brother. But he's like, you know what? He, he was a Christian, this guy, a Jewish Christian. And he said, he said, you know what the whole issue is around here? He's like, they're trying to solve spiritual problems through politics, and it will never be rectified until we get the spiritual house in order. And that's so true, and we need to pray for Israel. We need to pray for Israel. We need to stand with Israel. They need to... No, our, our Jewish brothers and sisters, like this is the, this is the root or the, the, you know, the, the trunk that we've been grafted into. And we need to be serious about praying for them. And this, they're coming. What Jesus is upset here is that Israel had missed it by their leaders. And in large part, Israel's missing it today. But God's not done with Israel. And he's coming again. And we want to pray for them that they would come to know Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to pray Come forward when you're ready. Take your elements and we'll close and sing in a couple songs. So let's pray. Father, I do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, uh, I thank you that you have mercy and grace upon me as a teacher of your scriptures. I'm just a man. And these words are challenging. The understanding that Jesus could come back, that that he will come back. It's even in that statement. It's there's just skepticalness in our culture because it's abnormal to think that God would come in the flesh. And we come by faith, by looking at the evidence, you know, such things as the case for Christ that we give away for free. The evidence that Christ was who he claimed to be is overwhelming. And so Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith. Father, we pray that you would help us to look forward to that day when we will appear before you, either in death, through the rapture, the second coming. Lord, we don't know how all of this is going to work out. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to deal with the so what. Like, why did you tell us about all this stuff? And I think you told us because you want us to live our lives today in a way that's pleasing to you. And Father, if there are those that are uncertain about their relationship with you, their security with you, Lord, I pray that you would help them to trust upon Christ, to have security of their faith, that they would grow in their walk with him. Lord, that you would help us to live out what the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2, 28. Lord, that we would abide in you, that when you appear, we don't have to shrink away in shame, that we could just jump up in your arms. And Lord, as we take communion, we're reminded of the broken body and blood of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for that. Lord, as we take, we pray that you would bring to mind friends, family members, neighbors, opportunities that you give us, Lord, every day to talk about you. Lord, that you would help us to proclaim 
your death until you come. We love you, Father, and we pray that our last few songs, Lord, would be um, a prayer to you from our hearts. We love you, Father, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.